So if you'd open your Bibles to Colossians 1, we'll take a somewhat long route to get there, but I think that's where we'll finally end up. Colossians 1. One of the really uh, remarkable things about reading the Bible I found for myself is that any topic can be pursued to great depth, that there's no area that is out of bounds in terms of what God comments. And any topic, to me at least, is worth pursuing endlessly. And the Bible isn't just full of information, um, it's transformation, that God isn't interested in us just knowing more. He's interested in us becoming more. So as Pastor Fred has been preaching uh, through the Beatitudes these last few months, I've been struck by how much the Bible speaks about all of these issues. Um, What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Where is that language used elsewhere in the Bible? What does it mean to be meek? Blessed are are the meek. That was a fun conversation in our car where I I asked the kids, because that's kind of our job as parents is to help them to track with what's being preached. Who do we know that models meekness for us? Uh, So it was a uh, a fun conversation. And all of this assumes that this is what God is calling us to, that this is the life that God is calling us to. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're called to be poor in spirit. Blessed are those who grieve. Um, Blessed are the meek. Inherent in that is we're being called to that life. Now last week, Pastor Fred preached on uh, the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, for they will be called children of God. And this peacemaking is another example where you can pursue endlessly what the Bible's vision of peacemaking is. And that's what we're going to do today. And again, the idea inherent in it is that that is the life that God is calling us to. And I use the words of Marcia Strauss from a few weeks ago. When we know and believe the story of God, we embrace its demands. The Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus, these aren't optional for followers of Jesus. They're not the the gourmet option for the top tier of Christians. It's the life that God calls his people to. And when we know and we believe this story, we will embrace its demands. So again, peacemaking is one of these topics that we can pursue almost endlessly through uh, the Bible. And I just looked up a couple, though there are a lot more. If you looked in James 3.18... It says, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the seed is planted and it ultimately bears righteous fruit. But who is it planted by? By those who make peace. Hebrews 12.14, pursue peace with all men and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So here, the idea of pursuing peace, of being a peacemaker, 
is compared to the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, sanctification is an interesting word. And I'm instantly going back to yesterday at the Bible quiz. I do want to give uh, props to our leaders, especially um, because they kind of shield our kids from the more competitive element of it. <laughs> it's, it's stressful up there for those kids. If you ever, how many of you have watched the Bible quiz? Like, I'm just sitting there dying for these kids who are standing up in front of a bunch of adults and they're answering really difficult questions. And one of these, she must have been like, what, 11 or 12-year-old girl who had to answer the question, what is fellowship? And she gave her answer and she had like total deer and headlight-itis and she gave her answer and the judge asked her to, what was the word? Elaborate. And could you elaborate on your answer? And, and I'm thinking, no. <laughs> A, she probably doesn't know what the word elaborate means. And she's standing up in front of all these people. It's just so stressful. But anyway, you know, that, that aside, she, um, she, she quizzed out eventually, uh, probably to her great joy. But anyway, our leaders have always been great about um, shielding. I just know for my own kids, uh, Liz Williams in particular has always just been about the teaching of Scripture and connecting with kids and not worrying about the points and all of that stuff, but really really emphasizing scripture, and, and as parents, we're, we're certainly grateful for that. But this idea of sanctification is becoming more holy. This is what God expects of his people. And it says the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So this comparison of peacemaking as a part of our sanctification is important. Now, we can pursue this issue, and we're not just interested in information, as though simply knowing more was enough. That has never been the case at any point in history, that, that simply knowing more is enough. Peacemaking, though, gets really close to the heart of God. And as children of God, we are called to that same kind of peacemaking. So we can, by God's grace and by his spirit, be transformed by this aspect of God's character. It's not a burden, though at times it feels that way. It's an essential part of God's character, and I'd like to explore that today. Um, Our world is just becoming more fractured and fragmented, and this call to peace, this call to reconciliation, I think is uniquely Christian And I think it has a lot to offer, but I have to also be frank that I don't see a lot of it. I think that a lot of times we fight the way that the world fights uh, in terms of weaponry, but God's peacemaking is quite a bit different. So part of today is an encouragement, part of today is a challenge. As we explore this in more depth, I go back again to Marcia Strauss to say, when we know and believe the story of God, we will embrace its demands. So following the way of Jesus' peacemaking, our own peacemaking offers a really compelling way forward as followers of Jesus. So I'd like to explore that today. So I want to start with a simple question. How does God make peace? So we are called as sons and daughters of God to peacemaking. Our own efforts should reflect the Father, if I understand that correctly. So if we're called children of God, then our own peacemaking should reflect that. So with that, I want to ask the question, how exactly does God make peace? And with that, we will turn to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. 
An endlessly interesting passage. Uh, It's come up a number of times this year in Sunday school uh, because it really does speak to uh, God's authority as the creator of all things. And just in case you've never read the passage, um, it's basically a poem or a hymn. And if you look at the way that it's structured, one, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 17 is kind of one chunk. And then following that is another chunk. And a lot of the language is the same. So I'm just going to download my, my software onto your hardware here and just give you the cheat sheet. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 17 is all about how Jesus is the creator and he has authority over all things. Jesus made everything. We even talked about this morning, even wasps and caterpillars. Uh, Jesus is Lord of it all. Uh, he has made everything, and therefore he has authority over everything. We go on to Colossians 1.18, uh, where it says that Jesus is the Redeemer. He has authority over the church. So this whole passage is about authority over creation by virtue of being the one who made it, and also he is authority over the church because he has redeemed it. Now, as a fast uh, survey, it does answer the question, how does God make peace? If we go to verse 20, which there's no chance you're going to be able to read that, but you've got your Bibles open, so you'll be able to see it. Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus makes peace by the shedding of his blood. Does anybody hear anything unique in that? Jesus' peacemaking looks very different. So I have uh, a, a short little saying on there. God makes peace through acts of humility and self-sacrifice and at great cost to himself. That is how God makes peace. So now, all of a sudden, the expression, blessed are the peacemaker, for they will be called sons and daughters of God, to me, takes on a very different a very different flavor. So Paul's entire point here is authority. But how does God gain authority? Not by simply suppressing people and telling them, because I told you so. He gains victory. He gains authority through acts of self-sacrifice and humility. And I believe this to be uniquely Christian. So, we have to consider that Jesus makes peace by means of his blood. And what does blood represent in the Bible? Shout it out if you know it. Cleansing, okay. The shedding of his blood does, but what is the... It's the life. It's the very life of the thing. So, blood is the Bible's way of communicating life. That God pours out his own... Uh, his, his life, his essence, himself, his blood, that's what it represents. And again, it's at great cost to himself. The principle seems simple enough. And I don't think that we have a real issue um, understanding this. 
I don't think that it's a problem of understanding. I think it's just simply we don't want to do it. <laughs> do you ever have those moments in the Bible where it says to love your enemies? And you think that can't possibly be the case because God must be like me and I don't want to do that. So surely God isn't like that either. The problem isn't that, well, you know, certain, certain words might mean different things. I just think that we don't want to do it. But I think that it does warrant some discussion. What does it look like for us to be humble, self-sacrificing peacemakers? And I think what we really need is compelling examples. Um, Now this, in case it hasn't been already, this might be a little bit confusing, but uh, we're going to give it a try anyway. I think what we need to do is we need to retrain our imaginations. Okay? There's two types of people in the world. There are people who are compelled by positive things and people who are compelled by negative things. So, I am going to use several athletic examples. Highlight videos of an NFL player being savagely laid out by another NFL player. Do those sell well or do they sell poorly? They sell well. Now, Mark Booty and Steve Abbott aside, what is the real reason that people watch NASCAR? You want to see an accident. Okay, right. So, we're, is it not right? Right. We'd rather see a circus than go to an art museum in most cases. And not circus in the big top, but you'd drive kind of a mile out of your way to watch an accident. And even follow-up accidents on the highway are usually based on what? The slowdown... <laughs> so that we can all drive slowly by and watch what's happening. And I don't think that I'm, I'm wrong about this. I think that we very seldom make decisions based on what we know or what we believe. I think we make decisions based on... So in order to become the kind of person that is attracted to those disasters, you have to orient your heart in a certain way. And I don't mean to drive too close to home, but how many of our imaginations are formed by subpar views of love? Meaning, like, we watch The Bachelor, and we can have extended conversations about what an idiot, frankly, everybody is, and they've subjected themselves to it, so I, I, whatever. Um, But how many of our ideas of love are formed based on things like that? Or pick your equivalent example. Think about the music that you listen to and think about what really resonates with you. And if you were to follow up and ask, does this have godliness written all over it? Is there a positive portrayal of love and relationships and friendships and life and society? Uh, Or do we just want to go hog wild when somebody stands up there and talks about bombing somebody back to the Stone Age? Like, that kind of stuff sells because we're the kind of people that that resonates with. So Jesus, the way he said it is, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So we used to, uh, Cynthia and I worked at a uh, summer camp, and we had a lot of inner city kids come, and they had never really eaten, like, a home-cooked meal 
So when they sat down to dinner uh, the first night and they had like real spaghetti and meatballs, they didn't like it. Spaghetti and meatballs. So I think I could make a case that the homemade stuff's better. Right? Anybody prefer the Chef Boyardee stuff to the... No, you, you like the real stuff. Andreas is a little iffy back there. Um, he, he might like the Chef Boyardee version better. Their, their imaginations, their taste buds were all trained on that particular thing. They just couldn't eat anything different. It would be, um, I have to confess that fast makes me nauseous because I've had so much of the good stuff, Thea, that she just makes all this great stuff. So when I have something that's less than that, it just... It, it affects you at the subatomic level. Anyone tracking with this at all? Like, does that make sense? So I think a lot of what happens is you watch shallow things, you listen to shallow things, you then think shallow things, and the end product is what? You're a shallow, right. And there's just an infinite number of examples where this is the case. If you read more difficult books. It doesn't mean that they're better, but at least you're being exposed to more complex ideas. You become a little bit more nuanced. And then all of a sudden, those ideas, the bumper sticker slogans just don't satisfy you anymore. Like, I'm at that point in my life where I'm thankful that I have kids because I can do all the necessary background building when I want to explain an idea. So, like, when somebody asks me a question now, I'm like, it's going to take us like nine hours for me to like build the, the necessary background in order to answer that question. When we're a bumper sticker slogan society, say it in 140 characters on Twitter or nobody's going to listen to you. Do the hashtags count in the total? Does anybody? I was just trying to, oh, oh, I snuffed somebody out. You weren't supposed to answer the question. Uh, yeah, so hashtagging. Sorry, I'll stop. So what we need, to get back to my point, is we need compelling examples of humble self-sacrifice. And frankly, we need constant exposure to these examples, right? So I say this to the youth group parents every year. We meet for about 90 minutes a week. We don't meet year-round. Like, it's just a drop in a bucket. And it's the same thing with Awana. I love our Awana leaders. They are wonderful people. They minister to our kids in countless ways that's not going to make as big an impact as the full family life. You just need constant exposure to these things. And I'm not saying that, you know, a Snickers bar is a bad thing, right? But if all you ever ate was Snickers bars, what would be the, the outcome? You got Paul Collins back there. You'll be seeing him frequently, right? It's just not good. Once in a while, it's fine. Good comedy, whatever, that's not what I'm talking about. But my question is, how is your heart oriented? And if your heart is oriented toward peacemaking, toward humble self-sacrifice, toward reconciliation, and we have those kinds of compelling examples, um, I think that we'd really be on, on to something. So I want to show a clip, and Andreas is going to set it up while I, while I talk a little bit. Um, has anyone ever seen the documentary Weapons of the Spirit? Has anyone heard of the documentary Weapons of the Spirit? Okay, we got a couple. <laughs> and um, So basically what this is, it's a documentary. There was a French village um, during World War II, uh, and I always pronounce it incorrectly because I always try to sound like a snooty French person, Le Chambeau, 
How is that? Is that all right? I'll need somebody else to say it for me. But this small village, uh, about 5,000 people during World War II, it's done by somebody who was a child at the time, and it's this village that sheltered 5,000 Jewish people during World War II. Now, if you do the math on that, the village is about 5,000 people, and they were able to harbor about 5,000 Jewish people. Um, So kind of a one-to-one correspondence there. But what's interesting, if you can find the documentary, it's a little bit dated, right? You sophisticated movie watchers are going to be critical. But I think that this is really a compelling example in so many ways uh, of what this kind of peacekeeping, uh, peacemaking would look like. And a lot of it is that they were motivated by their faith to do it. So this is the, like a three-minute introduction uh, to the documentary, and you'll see a little bit uh, of, of what, what we're talking about here. So if we could play that. I'm a Jew born in Nazi-occupied France. At that time, a spiritual plague was still sweeping throughout the Western world. It produced the Holocaust. The Holocaust that mutilated my family, burned my roots, wiped out one-third of my people. This was my mother's family in Poland before the war. They killed her mother, her younger brother, her sister, her brother-in-law, her little niece. And yet, my parents and I, and many others, were sheltered in a village in the mountains of France. I returned there to find out why. In the beginning... A few Jews made their way to this tiny corner of the world. And the peasants and villagers of the area took in the Jews who came. And the Jews kept coming. And the people of Le Chambon kept taking them in. Individuals, couples, families. The children, the elderly, people of all ages. Those who could pay and those who couldn't. Jews without accents and Jews with accents. Doctors and merchants and intellectuals and homemakers. From Paris and Warsaw and Vienna and Prague. It's on a train very much like this one that my parents arrived in Le Chambon-sur-Lignon in the fall of 1943. A friend had steered them here and they rented a room in a farmhouse with some peasants named Roche. Not much is left of the farm. My mother was pregnant, and on March 25, 1944, a Jewish baby had the good fortune to see the light of day in a place on earth uniquely committed to a survival. The Nazis had proclaimed a thousand-year Reich and appeared triumphant. But for the people of Le Chambon, that was beside the point. Here, at one time or another, in the course of four long years and throughout the area, some 5,000 Jews found shelter among some 5,000 Christians. We didn't ask any explanation. Les gens qui venaient sur le poêle avant de service, 
Mais vous saviez que vous courriez quand même quelques risques à abriter des juifs à l'époque. Au début, pas tellement. Et puis, vers la fin, bien sûr, ça commençait bien à... À devenir dangereux. Dangereux, mais enfin... Mais vous les avez gardés quand même Ah oui. Pourquoi Je ne sais pas. On était habitués. things I find remarkable if you watch the entire thing is that they're so unassuming about what they do. They don't see it as heroic, um, but they're motivated by their faith to do it. Um, and I have a quote here from one of the local pastors in, in the village, and he says, the duty of the Christians is to resist the violence that will be brought to bear on their consciences through the weapons of the Spirit. We shall resist when our adversaries will demand of us obedience contrary to the orders of the gospel. We shall do so without fear, but also without pride and without hatred. Just these simple people, um, not a major city, not a, even a particularly big village. Um, and as, as you go on in the documentary, um, as they continue to ask these people, why, why would you do this? Um, they, they point to the wall of the church that says, love one another. And they did it without pride or without hatred. Um, and I, I, I love that they did it with no, not even judgmentalism about the Nazis. It was simply the right thing to do. They didn't care about the, the Reich. They, this is the right thing to do um, when our consciences are assaulted. So again, a compelling example. And I'm not saying everybody has to run out and watch this. That wouldn't do it. But examples uh, like this. So weapons of the Spirit. Um, is a fine example of what this humble, self-sacrificing uh, way of being in the world, this humble, self-sacrificing peacemaking. Another is uh, a film with Robert De Niro and uh, Jeremy Lyons. Has anyone seen The Mission? Excellent. All right, good. I'm glad we got some, got some support out there for this one. Now, this one is, is slightly more fictional, but still historical, and The long story made short is uh, that I think Portugal regains control of some land after the Jesuit priests have sort of um, evangelized the, the locals. And there's this massive conflict at the end. And De Niro's character in the movie, who was a man given to the slave trade, given to, to war and to violence, eventually converts, uh, becomes a priest himself, And he and Jeremy Lyons, throughout the ending of the movie, have very different visions of, what, of how they should fight uh, the, the onslaught of, of the Portuguese. Um, and I'll leave it to your watching. Um, I don't want to give any, no spoilers here, but it's well worth picking up from your local uh, library. It's, uh, it's quite a compelling vision of what humble, self-sacrificing peacemaking looks like. So I'll leave that to your, uh, to your watching. Now, those are big-scale examples, and, and anytime you use an example from the Holocaust, you're talking massive scale. How does that affect our own day-to-day -day lives? So I have a few questions for reflection. If you really want to kind of drive deep into your own heart, because it's going to look different for everybody, right? Uh, all of us here encounter different people. We live in different situations day by day. The... 
the application is going to look very different. But what does this type of self-sacrificing, humble peacemaking look like in all of my relationships? Now imagine if you decided before every single thing that you said, you decided to check it at this little mental filter and say, is this a humble self-sacrificing thing to say? Or before you did anything, you were to say, is this a humble self-sacrificing way to act? Would that have a positive effect on your relationships or would that just kind of bring everybody down? How many of you would like to be married to a person who that's what they did before they thought, before they spoke, before they acted? And it doesn't mean you're not already, but some of you will want to be, continue, you want to continue to be married to, uh, to that person. Uh, right. Now, the other thing to think about is in Jesus' peacemaking, um, there's not avoidance. You remember the scene in Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't think Jesus particularly wanted to do this. It's not an easy thing. Uh, the humiliating, physically excruciating death on the cross doesn't seem to be something that people really want to sign on for. So usually you have to go through to get through. So what hard conversations might have to take place in order, again, to be a person who's known as a peacemaker in the way that God defines it? Another question would be, where does reconciliation need to happen? If you looked at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what rights might you have to let go of? And we're all committed to being right, and it doesn't matter if I treat everybody badly. What matters is I'm right. Anybody? Am I alone in that one? Or Okay, it's my <laughs> I'm the only one. Okay, well, I'll just apply that for myself. What Philippians 2 says is that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped meaning it wasn't something to be hoarded, it wasn't something to be stolen or robbed. He didn't get to cling to his rights as God, but he chose the humble, self-sacrificing way. And another question, what wrong might you have to endure? Not as an avoidance thing, but um, you'll see in one of these passages, 1 Corinthians 6-7, in the issue with lawsuits among believers, Paul says, wouldn't it be better for you to be defrauded, meaning you, you take the hit rather than go and embarrass the church of Jesus Christ before the law courts. What rights might you have to let go of in order to be the type of person who lives in this humble, self-sacrificing way? So as we consider peacemaking from a biblical standpoint, there's a lot of examples to show this humble Uh, self-sacrificing, peacemaking. They show with clarity that God wants us walking in the way of Jesus. Humble, not self-exalting, not needing to be heard, not needing to be seen. Humble, self-sacrificing ways that this is the example that Jesus would have for us not contending with the weapons of the world, not warring with our own power, our own arrogance, our own capability, but laying down your life on behalf of other people. Every action brought under the lordship of Christ. And you know what? We start to think that way and we look at compelling examples and all of a sudden we find that that really resonates with me. Like, that's the kind of person that I want to be. And there's no light switch where you flicker it on and off. 
It's all about our habits, the choices that we make, what we choose to uh, let resonate with us. That forms our image of the world. There's not time to consider all these passages, but I really think this is a pretty significant theme in the Bible. But if you look at Revelation 12:11, you'll see that they, uh, the Christians in the book of Revelation gain victory not through the strength of their military might, uh, not, by, um, not by their own strength. They love not their own lives even unto death. So go look that up at some point. 1 Corinthians 6-7 I already mentioned is the lawsuits. It'd be better to be defrauded. It'd be humble self-sacrificing to take the hit rather than bring dishonor on the name of God. And Ephesians 5, 22 to 30, if this is a conversation that needs to take place uh, amongst spouses, uh, that this is the, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And husbands, do you know this passage? Husbands are told to love their wives how? As Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? In dominating authoritarian ways? unconditionally and self-sacrificing and humble. And what I find interesting about that passage, if you go look at it, so then it, it calls uh, wives to submit, their hus- submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. I think that if husbands were loving their wives that way, all of a sudden submission becomes a non-issue. And, truth be told, because we we'll, we'll have equal time here, because if there's anybody who's going to use that to bully their husbands, it's also frankly, pretty easy to love your wife as Christ loved the church when, it's, you're, when there's submission going on, when there isn't this kind of chip-on-your-shoulder, arrogant attitude. Like, all of a sudden, it becomes easy, in a sense, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So I always find that the problem is that everybody loves the other person's verse too much if that makes sense, right? So wives love the husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And husbands love the submit out of reverence for Christ. But if, we, if you just trade, say, okay, you know what? I'll take yours, you take mine, and we'll, we'll deal with our own and, and we'll see what happens. There's not going to be a lot of winning going on in the way the world defines it. And I think that's really the, that's really the, the crux of the matter, pun intended. Um, So as we close, may we be those who ask at every moment and with every interaction, am I following the way of the humble, self-sacrificing peacemaker? Does what I just said, what I just did, reflect the way of the humble, self-sacrificing peacemaker? Whose kingdom am I building, and in what way am I building it? And as we seek to discern the movements of God around us, as we consider the sources of our wisdom, we always want to ask who or what most reflects the spirit of the humble, self-sacrificing peacemaker. What are the kinds of things that I'm going to allow uh, to penetrate my thinking, to, uh, to guide my wisdom? Is this what I'm, you know, holding up the sign and the foam finger for, does this represent the humble, self-sacrificing Christ, or is it just my own agenda? And may we be the kind of people uh, of whom that's true. And may we see, frankly, the fruit of what that would look like in this culture. If we were laying down our lives for each other, uh, for our communities, 
I can't see but how that bears fruit consistent with God's character. Let's pray.